This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. This week's guest is author Annie Murphy-Paul. Annie is an acclaimed science writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Scientific American, The Best American Science Writing and many other notable publications. Her latest book is The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. She is also the author of Origins, an exploration of the science of prenatal influences, as well as The Cult of Personality, a cultural history and scientific critique of personality testing. She is currently a senior writer at the podcast and radio program, Hidden Brain. Annie Murphy, Paul, welcome to the Workplace Podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you, William. I'm so happy to be here. So I'm going to start this podcast with high praise for your book. The book is The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside of the Brain. Now, as part of this book, the book reveals how we tap the intelligence that exists beyond our brains, in our bodies, our surroundings, and in our relationships. I first read this book and I looked at my notes exactly two years ago this week. And that's where I gave a book review of five stars for anybody that's involved in HR, Future of the Workplace, L&D, this is essential reading. So You've had two years of all this praise and different people looking at the applications. It's uh, tell me a little bit about that, of, of the, the reception that received about this book. Yeah, well, you know, book authors never know until their book is out in the world how people will respond. And I was, I've been very gratified by the reception of it because it is a bit of an abstract idea. I, I think the idea is abstract, although in a way it's very grounded in um, the concrete realities of who we are as human beings. Um, I found that certain uh, groups within the readership of the book really got it right away. Interestingly, teachers um, and educators seem to grasp um, the implications of the extended mind right away. Also artists, people in the arts, I think because people in the arts have been thinking with their bodies and their spaces and collaborating with other people. That's so much of what the arts are about. Um, and then of course, people, leaders in the workplace, I think um, a lot of them really latched on to the idea of, of that the brain itself, the organic biological brain is limited and we need to um, transcend its limits by bringing in outside the brain resources. That's really the the kernel of, of what the extended mind is about. So um, yeah, it's been really fun to see this idea uh, that I borrowed. I shouldn't say that it's my idea, but I, sh I should make clear that I borrowed it from these two philosophers that we we might talk about. But to see this idea that I elaborated on and and um, and wrote about um, go out into the world and and receive such a, a welcome and warm reception, it was wonderful. 
I, I must say for a science book, it is very interesting. I'm I'm not one to like technical reading or anything like that. It's got stories, it's got facts. This everything is is in this. And and at the time when I read this first, it was during COVID. Everybody was doing Zoom. We were talking about hybrid working, designing office spaces. Uh, and I kept thinking about, oh my, there are so many applications for when we go back to work, about redesigning how we work. And it was so timely then because, you know, when we talk about Zoom fatigue and all this stuff, these weren't even phrases that were out when you written your book. Yet you have given us the research on how to, uh, I suppose, um, to restore our, our mental energy. So we, we'll talk about that in a second. So before we start, can you settle this one for me? Is the brain more like a muscle or is it more like a computer or is it a bit of both? A bit of both and neither, I would say, William, because uh, I do bring up both of those analogies in the book. The brain is like a computer. The brain is like a muscle. Those are really common um, comparisons that we make. There's, in fact, they're so embedded in our language and in our thinking that we we think of them as a computer or as a brain without even really explicitly invoking that metaphor sometimes. Um, but I think as useful as both of those metaphors can be, they're also quite limited um, and limiting in the sense of um, they get in the way of, of us understanding what the brain truly is. You know, when we think of the brain as a computer, of course, the brain is, is not really a computer. It's, it's an evolved biological organ um, that was that evolved to do things quite different from what we expect it to do these days. Um, and so when we compare it to a computer or treat it like a computer, we often are disappointed by it or we treat it as almost a deficient computer, like a computer that doesn't remember things very well and like, you know, breaks down a lot, you know, um, when really the brain is an incredible entity when understood on its own terms, you know, and not, not as a glitchy computer, you know. And then the um, brain as muscle metaphor is also somewhat problematic in that it reinforces uh, what you might call a brain bound kind of view of, of intelligence and thinking that uh, the brain is what it's all about and what you need to do to get smarter and perform more effectively is exercise that brain, make it as strong as possible, all of which is good. And I, I'm a big you know fan of the growth mindset, which uses this um, brain as as muscle analogy, but what that leaves out is that um, I think an even more effective way to uh, to get smarter, to be more effective, is to bring in resources from outside the brain. And the brain as muscle analogy doesn't really allow for that. It, it's really focusing again in a very brain bound way on what's inside our, of our head. And I would like to widen our lens a little bit and say, yeah, but what about all the other things out there that could that you could be using to think more intelligently? And, and that would bring me then to, I suppose, we're, we're in a world now of AI and chat GBT. And the more I read your book again, as I was preparing for this again, it's, it's, it's as you say in your book, it's that new vision for human abilities. So it's a bit like we need to up our game now with you know, the onset of AI and chat GPT. So in that case, then what what is it that we can can do to make sure we future proof ourselves? If I want to be a professional in, in, in the workplace, what what do we need to do? 
apart from read this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, the chat GPT and, and these other artificial intelligence tools really exploded since the book came out. So in a way, it um, it's it's turned me back to this idea of the extended mind and made me think about what it what that theory what that idea has to offer us in this new era uh, that we're in with um with these uh ai chatbots um and what they can do so what's interesting is that i mentioned these two philosophers um who originated the idea of the extended mind andy clark and david chalmers and interestingly their original focus was on how do we extend the mind with our tools. And in, in my book, The Extended Mind, I mostly focus on how we extend the mind with our bodies, with our surroundings, and with our relationships. But the origins of, of the extended mind idea are really focused on tools. And that's how I think of ChatGPT and these other artificial intelligence uh, products. They're tools that we can use to extend our minds. Um, but the key lies in using them intentionally and skillfully. And we're still obviously in the early stages of figuring out how to do that. But I think, um, you know, a lot of fear and a lot of trepidation has come along with um, with the advent of these AI products. And I think I really take... Um, I take inspiration from the attitude of Andy Clark, who's the the one of the the two authors of the original extended mind paper who's really run with this idea of the extended mind. He points out that we have always, human beings have always extended their minds with tools from the first human who picked up a stick and drew a figure in the sand or whatever, you know? So this is not, it doesn't have to be anything so new or scary. It's another evolution of our, our, our human capacity and tendency to use tools to to um, to incorporate tools into our thinking and to use them to think better. So um, he he kind of embraces what he calls the loopiness of human nature, the fact that our biological intelligence seems to be improved and enhanced by making loops outside, making our, having our thoughts make loops outside of our brains through you know the body the physical surroundings other people but also through these tools um and i so i i find that to be the most optimistic and sort of empowering way to think about these um these new devices and and products that we have at our disposal so if it were to lean into that and enhance our mental capacity then i'm going to go back to the analogy of the muscle then uh, the brain as a muscle then is is how do i practice cognitive fi fitness you know that you mentioned that in the book how do i practice that yeah well so adherence of growth mind the growth mindset would say you know it's all about deliberate practice it's about grit it's about um making your your brain stronger through exercise and i think all of that is very valuable but again i think it um misses and leaves out um the whole world of extraneural outside the brain resources that we could be using um, to, to allow ourselves to think better. And again, the key there is to think, to, to use these extraneural resources in an intentional way, in a thoughtful and skillful way, because we are extending our minds all the time. We're all, we're always using our bodies. I'm, I'm gesturing right now, for example, I'm, I'm bouncing ideas off of you and we're extending our minds with each other's minds. Um, but because we, we do tend to be a brain bound society, a brain bound culture, 
we don't, we extend our minds, but we don't do so intentionally and skillfully. And that I think is um, where the real promise of the extended mind lies. So when I'm designing leadership development programs, we will have a mixture of, as you say here, with your bodies, the sensations, gestures, and movements. We talk about natural spaces and built spaces and space for ideas. And then thinking with relationships, expert peers and different groups like that. As part of the programs we design with some of my partners, then these are key elements. So we'll talk through that because natural spaces is great for creativity and innovation. And then we talk about Zoom, we talk about hand gestures. So we'll go through that um, as we go through the podcast. And we're on Zoom right now. So a lot of people are kind of going, well, how can you increase your mental capacity if your attention is overloaded by Zoom fatigue or, you know, we need to restore that depleted attention. How, how do you, how do we do that? Yeah, well, that's certainly a concern these days, right? When we spend so much of our lives on Zoom and so much more broadly of our lives engaged in a really uh, hard-edged, uh, tightly focused kind of attention, you know, which is the kind of uh, attention that most of us who who work in the, in the world of, of, of knowledge and concepts, um, that's that's what our, our work is constituted of. And that is very draining. You know, it's uh, our brains, again, to go back to to the na- the essential nature of our brains, they didn't really evolve to focus on these these um, tiny symbols, you know, for hours. So when we think about our attention, we think so much in terms of um, the demands on our attention where and how we're going to direct and manage our attention. We don't really think about replenishing our attention, you know, sort of refilling the tank of our attention. We're just, we're more concerned with how we're spending it down. Um, but there is a quite easy and readily available way to restore our attention. And that is to spend time outside. Um, you know, and again, that goes back to our our history, our evolutionary history as human beings that we evolved in the outdoors. Our brains are sort of tuned to the frequency of the kind of information and stimuli that we encounter when we're outside. And so it's very easy and effortless and also pleasant for our brains to process natural stimuli, you know, the clouds in the sky or the leaves on a tree. It's, um, And I think we even know that intuitively when we go outside, we kind of it's it's relaxing, it's diverting and interesting. It's never dull, you know, to be outside, but it's also not draining. And so just spending some time outside, or even if you can't do that, looking out the window for for a bit, um, research on attention restoration suggests that that uh, refills our attentional tank so that then we can turn back to that very fine, um, you know, hard-edged kind of attention that we need to pay to to our work. And there's great research that you mentioned in your book where even light and someone beside a window. So Google did research on this, that people who sat beside windows were more creative and more productive. I, you know, so that's where workspaces are really important then as well, how, how we design them. So that brings me to the, the thought then about when we talk about innovation and creativity, there's a lot we can learn from magpies, isn't there? So we talk about, you know, necessity and the mother invention. Tell me more about that because we've got tech cookbacks. We've all this stuff happening now. Tell me about that. Tell me about the magpies. The magpie. Yeah. So I mean, we were talking earlier about the inadequacy of the metaphors that we have available to us. The brain is computer. The brain is muscle. And so I started to think about, well, what would be 
a metaphor for the brain and an analogy for the brain that kind of captures what I'm trying to say here with about the extended mind. And I came up with the idea of the magpie, uh, which if your readers aren't familiar with the magpie, I mean, not your readers, I'm, I'm such a print person, your listeners, uh, a magpie is sort of famous. Uh, it's, it's a member of the crow family. It's famous for taking bits and pieces from its environment, often sparkly, shiny things, you know, uh, not just twigs and, and moss, but, you know, Easter grass and eyeglass frames and croquet wickets and wire and, you know, all kinds of crazy things and weaving them into their nest. And to me, this made a, a wonderful, uh, analogy for the brain because I see the brain in its in the process of thinking as taking bits and pieces from our environment and and weaving them into into the into our thinking processes and if that's the case if we're looking at our thinking process through the lens of this metaphor then the raw materials around us that we surround ourselves with um, become really important. You know, um, if we think of the brain as being sort of sealed inside our skulls and the brain is the only thing that matters, then what's around us doesn't really matter because all the action is going on inside the brain. But if we conceive of the brain as this very dynamic, almost collector and um, assembler of, of ingredients from the outside world, then, um, in improving the nature of our outside world because suddenly becomes very important. For example, making, as you were mentioning, William, our, our office environments, workplace environments really conducive and congenial for good thinking or um, choosing people to associate with and, and uh, collaborate with who are really going to enrich our minds or, um, you know, placing ourselves in settings that have access to natural light or to views of the outdoors, those things, now we can see how much they really matter for intelligent thought, because uh, it's not just going on within the brain. Speaking of intelligent thought, then a little fascinating uh, anecdote that you put in was during a famine, I can't remember where, but it shows that magpies actually made nests out of barbed wire. I, I think that it's fascinating. Yeah, that was in the Dust Bowl in the US um, that happened, I think, in the early 20th century. And it's like, that's what that's so amazing and inspiring also is that magpies are so resourceful. You know, they can make a nest out of anything. And that to me is also inspiring in terms of thinking about our brains. You know, it is wonderful to have an enriched environment from which to draw and from which to... Um, to assemble our thinking, but it's also the case that we are very resilient and resourceful creatures and we can build our, our thinking processes out of whatever is available to us. So you mentioned earlier on about being brain bound, and that brings me to this uh, concept that you introduce us to the neurocentric bias. What is neurocentric bias to our listeners? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's um, the neurocentric bias is so deeply embedded in our culture and our society that we don't even see it. But what, what it, what it refers to is the fact that when we think about thinking, when we imagine where and how thinking takes place, we immediately assume um, that it's going on in the brain and in the inside the individual brain, not even among brains, but inside, you know, one brain. And philosophers have called this um, the brain and, you know, they call it, they refer to it as like a brain in a vat. Like what if <laughs> the brain were kind of isolated from the body, isolated from physical surroundings, isolated from other people, 
it turns out that a brain in a vat is not very useful. It's not very effective, you know? And um, I sometimes felt during COVID when we were only seeing other people on, um, on screens, like that, like a brain in a vat, we were just like, you know, a brain inside the square of, of a zoom screen. Um, and so a brain in a vat, which is kind of like um, the default of how we, we think about um, how mental activity happens is such a deficient and such a impoverished kind of uh, entity compared to a brain that is richly connected to the body, to the sensations of the body, the movements and gestures of the body, to the places that we're in, it, the built environment as well as um, outside, and to this incredibly rich social life that we have with other people, all of a sudden the brain doesn't have to carry the the burden on its own anymore. Once we break out of that neurocentric bias, we can see that the brain actually flourishes best when it's so richly connected to all these outside resources. I might share a story actually from two hours ago. So I was under a bit of pressure. I went, there's cognitive pressure then or cognitive ability uh, diminishes. And what I tend to do is I go for a walk. So earlier on, I needed to be creative. I went for a walk and I was hugely creative and something that took, took me hours to design. I had it done in 10, 15 minutes. And I was like, well, it helped. The weather is gorgeous today. And in your book, you quote two intellectual heavyweights, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman that a lot of our listeners will know. And apparently, and I, I read different books about them, they did a lot of their work while walking and chatting to each other. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? And that's like one thing I'm really interested in is, in is the way we can layer uh, mental extensions. We don't have to use just one at a time. And in that story that you just related, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman were getting a threefer, you know, because they were walking, they were physically moving and using their bodies, extending their minds with their bodies. They were outside. So they were getting that hit of, you know, attention restoration that we get when we're outside. And they were extending their minds with each other's minds with that social kind of thinking. Um, so no wonder they were so brilliant, right? They were, <laughs> they were really extending their mind in every direction. And I, I, I sometimes do coaching sessions while walking. And especially if, if you have somebody who finds it hard to concentrate or distracted easily, or there, there's so many benefits to that. Plus I get my, my steps up on my watch, uh, which is, which is always a, a plus for me. And that gets me thinking about movement then that there's research done in schools where a lot of people and a lot of us today are spend the majority of our time sitting down. What, what are the, what's the research show about actually sitting down versus movement? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's so interesting that we assume that when we need to do serious mental work, what do we do? We've got to sit down usually by ourselves in a, in a silent room and close the door and that, and then we can really get down to thinking, you know, which is so perverse in a way because um, the brain was actually designed to to think while moving, uh, to think while being in social contact with other people, um, and of course to to do our thinking in the outdoors. So it's it's this we have this idea that really good thinking can only happen in these very constrained circumstances. Um, and in fact, you know, as I was saying, that we really were designed to be on the move, and it's quite unnatural for us to remain still. 
it takes a fair amount of mental effort to impose that inhibition on ourselves um, to inhibit movement. And that's all the more true for children, you know, for young people who, who are naturally so, so inclined to move. And so we're actually using up some of our limited mental resources, keeping ourselves still. So um, the alternative to that doesn't have to be um, big muscle movements that, you know, it's wonderful to be, um, thinking and, and talking while walking, but we can also engage just in, in smaller sort of micro movements. And this is one of the good reasons to get a standing desk, um, because it turns out that when we're standing, uh, we just tend to shift our weight around a little bit, move our arms or our legs in ways that we don't when we're sitting. So I think, I really think we need to revise this idea that good, um, good thinking, serious thinking only happens when our bottom is in a chair. You know, I mean, I really think um, standing, walking, all these kinds of movements are, are um, really facilitative of good thinking. Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't they do research with walking treadmills and radiologists? What would the, there was a massive percentage increase in their productivity by even that gentle movement. Yeah, I love that study. I'm glad you mentioned that, William, because um, radiologists spend hours and hours looking at slides trying to perceive tiny, tiny little abnormalities, you know, so it's really draining work. Um, and um, it turns out that when uh, radiologists are doing that, looking at slides, but while we're walking on a treadmill, they're better able to pick out those tiny abnormalities that they're looking for. And one reason behind that, one reason maybe simply that they're, they're we're more alert when we're moving than when we're sitting down hour after hour. But another reason is that, um, you know, our brains evolved to, um, if we're moving, we're off, if we're on the move, we're often looking for something. We're looking for, you know, in, in, in our uh, ancient past, we were looking for predators or we were looking for um for, for promising opportunities for eating or, you know, what, whatever, whatever it was, we were moving because we were in search of something. And so it turns out that our visual capacities sharpen and intensify when we're moving. And so the radiologists, they actually were able to see better when they were, when their legs were moving than when they were sitting, which is just fascinating to think about how the brain and the body work together in these, in these ways. Um, often when I, design leadership and development programs we do outdoor experiences i might use lego serious play we might have puzzles where it's like rope bridge where they have you know different movements going on and people say well well why do you do that and and i i i sometimes quote your work here so um is it true that we remember a lot more when we're moving yeah the enactment effect actually grew out of research on um actual actors, you know, which is, it's, it's, um, when you think about it, how do actors memorize page after page of, of, um, of their script and of, of dialogue, um, from their scripts. And it turns out that that capacity to remember all those words so precisely night after night when they're performing is really closely tied to movement and actors will tell you that they, um, they will not, um, 
learn their lines, you know, until they until the play has been blocked out and they know how and where they're going to be moving as they speak those lines. And then those movements um, become associated. It kind of, I think of it as creating almost like a, um, a coat hanger, you know, with, with lots of hooks. Um, the movement becomes the hooks on which they hang the lines. And without that structure of, of bodily movement, it's like those words would get lost. But when they're hung uh, on particular movements that are made um, in concert, you know, with the words, um, we do we do remember them better. That's the enactment effect. And that's so fascinating because another bit of research that came out of that when they talked about students, if they put incorporated movement into their learning strategy, they retain something like 78% of the information. Yeah, it's it's amazing that we we you know in our culture, um, again, this is kind of the neurocentric bias. We separate mind and body. We think of mind as being superior on this sort of ethereal plane up here and the body's this grubby animal thing down here, you know, but actually the body has so much to contribute to intelligent thought. We really need to sort of get over that Cartesian dualism, bring mind and body back together and say, how can my body and my the movements of my body support intelligent thinking or uh, in some ways, in some uh, cases even lead the way, you know, in the chapter on gesture, I talk about how um, people's emerging understanding of something that they're tr just trying to grasp and, and grapple with shows up first in their gestures and only later, a few milliseconds later in their, in what they're saying verbally. So in fact, our hands often know in a sense what we're trying to understand grasp what we're trying to understand before um our verbal language is, is kind of lagging behind so i work on zoom a lot we're on zoom here you're you're moving your finger in a circular motion to show you know movement uh and then retention as you move it up into your brain so it moves different parts so if i am on zoom and for example and doing online teaching right is there a case for I should sit with my hand still for what you're told to do when you do some presentation skills? Or is there a benefit of me waving my hands around slightly? Not obviously jazz hands the whole time. So what is it in that in the gestures? Because you speak about this in your book. Yes. Yeah. No, we definitely want to allow ourselves to gesture. And I think there is a miss misbegotten notion out there that that gesturing is somehow gauche or you know or it shows that you don't know what you're talking about or in fact you know people are more cogent and more eloquent in their uh, ability to to speak when they're they're allowing their hands to to move freely and we think that's because scientists think that think that's because um you know explaining something aloud kind of in an impromptu way as we often are called upon to do um is really cognitively taxing um it's a lot for the brain to be juggling ideas and trying to express them at the same time and so when we're cognitively burdened that way we hand off some of the burden to our hands our hands are able to um capture and express some of the ideas that are still sort of nascent for us that are still emerging you know and so um, we may even take a cue from our own hands. We're aware, of course, of our, our hands moving. We, we see our hands moving and um, we can read off um, some of the sort of um, still nebulous kind of ideas that we're just beginning to put words to. We actually can use our hands as, as a kind of guide. So we, we want to give ourselves permission 
permission to gesture as much as possible. And also um, I've tried, you know, and I've advised people to um, move their cameras when they are on Zoom far enough away that other people can um, can see our gestures and ask, maybe ask other people's, could you, other people, could you move your, your camera just a bit away so that I can see your hands because it's such an important source of information beyond um, the verbal information that we usually prioritize. It's such a fascinating topic, isn't it? And that whole aspect of of body language then, and you talk about that burden, if we have to keep it in our head to think creatively, to tell this in a logical manner and to keep still, there's an extra burden then to keep still, isn't there? So that's that's very freeing for our listeners here. And then I'd like to move on to this whole notion of interoception. Is that did I pronounce that correctly? Interoception, yes. Yeah, it's a it's a wonky technical word that most of us, including myself, had not heard about until I started doing this research. And I think, but I think the term gut feelings is more more common. It's, it's basically gesturing in that same direction. Yeah. And so what what is the importance of that then, that interoception or gut feeling when we start to, I suppose, tap into that untapped potential of the human mind? Yeah. Well, so when we think of our sensory capacities, you know, we think about seeing, hearing, touching, all these ways that we have with interacting with the external world. But it turns out that we have sensors embedded throughout the insides of our bodies that are feeding us a continuous stream of information from our bodies. And we often only become aware of that when it really grabs our attention, like when we uh, feel very nervous and we can feel our stomach, um, you know, flipping and flopping, or when we... Um, when we feel our tests, our chest tightening, you know, because we're because we're feeling anxious. Um, but in fact, there's a that flow of information from within our body at all times. And um, I, I advise people in the book to to consciously tune into that, um, either in a in a more formal sort of meditative way, or even just a, what I'd like to do in an informal way, a few times a day, checking in, seeing what's going on on the inside of the body. Because, and the the reason to do that, William, is that, um, you know, we're encountering so much information as we go through our everyday lives, far more information than our conscious minds can process or be aware of. But we are taking in all that information and it's being stored on a non-conscious level that's a treasure trove, you know, of information and knowledge that we can draw on. But, you know, then the question is, well, how do we draw on it if it's not conscious? And the answer is it's the body. The body is, is um, with these internal signals, it's giving us a little tap on the shoulder or a tug on the sleeve and saying, pay attention to this or, you know, respond in this way because you've encountered this before, or, you know, this is a warning signal. This is a signal to say, opportunity has arisen, you know, so, but we miss out on all of that if we, um, if we don't pay attention to our bodies. And of course, our culture really doesn't encourage us to pay attention to our bodies, just the opposite. It says, power through, you know, ignore what your body is telling you, just, you know, kind of lock yourself into that, uh, that mode of, of working your brain as hard as possible and, and treating the body as, as, um, um, neglecting the body and ignoring it. So I, I'd like to see us move in a direction towards uh, really paying attention to what the body has to tell us. There are HR managers left, right and center listening to this in their car and they're screeching on the brakes, got it going. I have to stop using the word gut feeling. I'm now going to use non-conscious information acquisition. 
I'm going to tap into that because when we're coaching or I'm a mediator as well, uh, that's a lot what we do, isn't it? We pick up things subconsciously and then we go, okay, there's something going on here or there's something I need to tap into. And it is about that uh, introspection uh, as well to say, okay, what's what's going on here? And this is where reflective practice comes in, you know, and this is as a mediator, as a coach, is, there's a lot of reflective practice that needs to to happen uh, there to be quite successful at that. So I'm glad there's science behind that. So if somebody asked me before, what is the benefit of reflective practice, non-conscious information acquisition? There you go. No, HR people, you can start your cars again. Okay, fascinated by this effect labeling. So you talk to us about different biases, uh, different things like that that we go on. So we, we could do a whole podcast on biases. So um, effect labeling, tell me, tell me more about that. Yeah. So that gets into the realm of emotions and how emotions are constructed. Actually, you know, when we have an emotion, we off, it comes to us as if it's fully formed. Like I feel sad. I feel angry. I feel anxious. Um, but in fact, we are, constructing those emotions from the basic building blocks of those bodily sensations that we were just talking about. Say, you know, your stomach is doing flip-flops and your heart is beating fast and your palms are sweating. That could be because you're really nervous because you're about to go on stage and give a, a high stakes talk. Or it could be that you're you're uh, really worked up uh, in anticipation because you're about to go on a roller coaster and you're about to have a great time and you're, you know, worked up about that. So in one case, the roller coaster case, you would say, I'm so excited. I'm so excited for this. And it's the exact same um, physical sensations that in that other um, situation of, of public speaking, you're construing as, as saying, I'm scared. I'm nervous. I'm so, I'm so, you know, I'm so anxious about this, um, this speech that I'm going to give. And so as long as we get down to those basic fundamental physical sensations because we can't tell our, ourselves not to feel what we're feeling you know that's that's what i used to do when i because i do have a bit of public speaking anxiety and i used to say calm down calm down annie but that never works because of course my heart was still beating my palms were still sweating my stomach was still doing flip-flops so uh, now i've learned to uh tune into those physical sensations but construct a different kind of emotion using those sensations as a building block and to say to myself, I'm so excited. I'm so psyched for this. I'm really pumped, you know, and it might sound a little silly, but it actually works because you're working with the actual genuine sensations that your body's feeding you. You're not denying them or suppressing them. You're just putting a different spin on them. You're constructing a different emotion out of those basic building blocks. And it, it does work. I, I encourage people to try it. Annie, let's talk neuroarchitecture. So in your book, you talk about thinking in different types of spaces. So tell me a little bit about neuroarchitecture and it's a, why we need to consider this as a factor, especially for workplaces. Yeah, the um, this there's a sort of budding or emerging field known as neuroarchitecture, as, as you know, which studies um, how interior spaces and exterior uh, facades affect uh, affect the brain or how the brain responds to those those spaces. And it, it is, as I say, a very kind of emergent field. We don't have a lot to go on yet, but we do know that 
Uh, the brain is exquisitely sensitive to physical settings um, that we think differently depending on where we are. And just as an aside, that's um, one way in which that computer, that brain is computer metaphor is flawed because a computer works the same way no matter where it's located, right? But human beings, uh, our brains uh, are quite different. We we think differently when we're outside than when we're inside, than when we're in a space that is... Um, filled with natural light as opposed to dark and dank, but also when it's filled with uh, what researchers call cues of belonging and cues of identity. These are, are things for people to think about uh, when they're designing a workplace or an office space. Um, are there signs and cues and symbols that will allow people to feel welcomed and as if they belong there? And also, uh, are there cues and symbols in our own private workspaces that remind us of who we are, of our identity in that particular space? Um, you know, in my own um, home office here, I have a lot of tokens and memorabilia that have to do with my life as a journalist, because in that space, as opposed to the rest of my home where I'm mostly, you know, like a mom, um, I want to remember that I am a journalist, I'm a thinker, I'm a, you know, a researcher. And so it's, uh, especially when we're these days, when so many of us are working from home, it can be really useful to remember that the environment we surround ourselves really primes a particular identity. And so the, mo the more that you can, um, surround yourself with what, again, scientists call evocative objects, you know, objects that uh, capture for us some aspect of our professional identity, creative identity, um, and that also make us feel connected to a valued group. Um, those things can really put us in a good state of mind to do our best work. So I was reading this with such fascinating, especially this part, because people are going back to the workplace now, and there's all this hot desking and different things going on and and people to put it simply are some people are mithered by the experience they're really put out but what are what are the dangers of hot desking on productivity teaming all that you know aspect where there could be barriers to productivity yeah well i mentioned their um you know cues of belonging and it's hard to imagine how you can have a lot of cues of belonging in a place where your desk today was not your desk yesterday and it's not going to be your desk tomorrow, you know? So although it's, um, you know, it's, it's very efficient to have people moving around like that, it doesn't really correspond with the human need uh, to belong and to have a place that feels like our turf. You know, there's really interesting research that shows that people bargain and negotiate more effectively, getting more value for themselves and their side when they're um, negotiating on their own turf. You know, we're, we're, we're animals really who, who do um, feel differently. And even uh, research shows like our hormonal profiles are are different uh, depending on whether we're on our own turf or somebody else's turf. You know, that's one of the reasons that sports teams are often um, more, you know, more often victorious or score more points when they're um, playing on their home field or in their home stadium. And so uh, the more we can feel that the space that we're working in is a space that belongs to us, that we have control over, um, that it's a place where we belong, that, that those are all supportive of good thinking. And I think um, these arrangements in which we're 
always sort of on the move or um, you know, in in rather generic kind of spaces are are not so supportive of good thinking. And then there is a lot to be learned from monks and monasteries. So this is what I found very fascinating as well. So we have a lot of this architecture from a long, long time ago. What, what can we learn from them? Yeah, I, I love this uh, this section too, William, because um, I learned that uh, although we think of monks as being very uh, solitary, you know, in fact, monks lived uh, in monasteries and had very structured ways of interacting with each other. Um, in a, you know, in addition to their private cells, they also had the refectory, of course, the chapel where they had services, um, the library, and these were places where um, the monks could interact with each other, but also in addition have this private cell. So the monks, you know, 400 years ago figured out something that psychologists are only now um, you know, holding up as the ideal way to work, which is what they call intermittent collaboration. So it's it's not good to be so isolated that you're never testing your ideas out with other people. But it turns out it's not ideal either to be in such constant contact with other people that you never have that private um, deep work time when um, you're not subject to those social pressures and sort of group think, you know, we actually need both. And I think that the ideal workspace um, would be something where we can engage in that oscillation between private protected quiet time for our own work uh, and then um, more convivial collaborative kind of social um, kinds of working. And we might be able to pull that off even within the, um, the hybrid work structure that so many of us are employing these days, which is that our homes, our home offices could be that place where we we do that quiet, protected, deep work. And then the office becomes a place that is really structured around collaboration, meeting, social interaction. Um, I, I, I can see that being a very um, felicitous kind of arrangement. And, and that's where you, you talk in your book about creating those uh, social collisions. So we do you know, um, stimulate and, and, and get, I suppose, that collective uh, intelligence there. And this reminds me of the quote you said by Robert Frost, so which Yellowwood gets his name from, is good fences make good neighbours and good walls make good collaborators. So, uh, so it is, because especially if you're a more introvert in nature, you know, uh, it, that quiet time and, and private space is important. And I must notice that the listeners did not see this. You were trying to recall something and the gesture that you made with your head was go it. And, and then you just turn around and then, and then you, you looked to the left and then you looked down and it's like, you could see it written somewhere. Is that what, what happened? I, you know, I, I write a bit in the book about why it is that closing our eyes um, uh, improves our, our recall for details. And uh, I think looking down and away from you, I think it was, um, you know, social stimuli, we are so wired for social stimuli. It's so, um, it so draws our attention and, and grabs our, our mental resources that um, in order to recall something from inside our own heads, which is what I was trying to do, I think I needed to shield myself from looking at you, William, just for a moment so I could call up that um, that phrase that I was looking for. 
Yeah, thank you for that uh, learning moment for our listeners. And I might leave it on this. So you've been gener- very generous with your time. So there's different types of spaces that you mention. There's embodied cognition, situated cognition, and distributed cognition. If you c- could talk us through what they are then. So when we're designing workspaces of the future, then we might take these into account. I'm glad you asked me that, William, because I find those terms really useful, actually, myself, in thinking about the different types of mental extensions. So the first would be embodied cognition, the idea that the body has a lot to contribute to intelligent thought. And um, that might lead us to think about how can we design spaces that are made for the body that support um, the intelligence of the body as well as um, as well as that of, of the mind. And that might be spaces where we can easily move around, standing desks, you know, um, spaces that bring us into contact with nature or things like that. Um, then there's situated cognition, which really gets to the heart of, of the fact that where we are affects how we think. And um, when we're designing our interior spaces, we might wanna think about um, how can we give people control and power over their space so that they feel that it's it's theirs? Um, how can we help people feel that they belong in the space where they're doing their work? And how can we um, appoint our spaces with cues of identity and belonging, these evocative objects that um, remind us what we're doing there in that particular role that affirm the kind of identity that we're adopting in that space and also make us connected, make us feel connected um, and make us feel a sense of belonging to a, a valued group. And then finally, there's distributed cognition, which refers to the fact that we can distribute our thinking um, across many brains, which we do when we work in teams or groups. Um, And when we're thinking in terms of spaces and um, distributed cognition, we want to think about how can we bring people together in ways that you know facilitate those those collisions that you were talking about. How can we um, provide them with shared artifacts, you know, like um, some of the best shared artifacts are analog, like giant pads of paper that we write on and then post, you know, the the pages around the room so that we can gesture to them and um, and all be um, all be physically kind of on the same page instead of just looking at our own little screen or our own little paper, like um, these shared artifacts, it turns out, are really good at creating that kind of mind meld where we're all thinking together. Um, yeah, so those those are the three, embodied cognition, situated cognition, and distributed cognition that we want to think about when we're designing our workplaces. And I find that really helpful when I'm facilitating with groups, pin board facilitation, Whereas visual facilitation or the collaboration of words and images together, it makes huge difference to getting alignment, getting clarity and changing behaviors. And there was one thing as well that um, there was a landscape architect, a Frederick Law Olmsted, is that right? A guy in Manhattan, and he was designing um, natural scenery into building. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Because I think... With the pandemic and we saw people not using cars, nature kind of, there was a resurgence of that and real wilding. So it's, I think that's an interesting um, aspect. Yes. As a former New Yorker, you know, I I um, was a, was an Emma lover of Central Park and Central Park was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. And what's so interesting about it is that when you go there, it feels very natural, you know, very, um, 
organic and sort of like, oh, this is this is what must have been here. He maybe, you know, planted a few things around the edges, but no, he completely engineered, re-engineered. It was what was there. It was a swampy, rocky kind of space. And he designed it um, in a way that, you know, generations of not just New Yorkers, but visitors from all over the world find so felicitous, so um, enjoyable. And that's because it's tapping into these very visceral, very ancient instincts whereby we love trees with spreading branches. We love glimpses of water. We love um, a bit of mystery. I love this, that um, researchers have found that we love a landscape. We we resonate with a landscape where there's just something around the bend, you know, we don't know quite what it is, but we want to, we want to keep walking because we're drawn towards that mystery. And Olmsted um, intuited all of these kinds of um, preferences that are very deeply rooted in our, our evolutionary history. But now scientists are sort of um, able to investigate and, and pinpoint exactly what it is about certain settings in nature that either man-made or that that are or naturally occurring that really appeal to us and answer some really deep need within us, which I think a lot of us have felt when we're in a really beautiful, inspiring kind of natural space. Well, speaking of inspiring, this podcast has been inspiring. We have science applied to creativity, innovation, workspaces, how we think, how we can uh be more productive, replenish our attention. So many positives uh, and insights we got from this podcast. Annie Murphy-Paul, thank you so much for joining the Workplace Podcast. And if, if people were to find more about your book, to find more about you, how might they do so? Well, thank you, William, for having me on. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Um, people can find me at my website, which is www.anniemurphypaul.com. And these days I'm really interested in creativity. That's very much an outgrowth of my work on the extended mind, which I think has so much to say about creativity, but I have a Substack newsletter that people can find uh, on the Substack site if they search for Annie Murphy Paul, it's called the Science of Creativity newsletter. So um, I invite people to, um, to check out what I'm thinking about and writing about now on that newsletter. Annie Murphy-Paul, I cannot wait to read your next book. Hopefully you'll come back to the Workplace Podcast. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Definitely read The Extended Mind, a wonderful read. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please download and share it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organization.